This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I am your host, Alexandreou. It's been a pretty insane few weeks in terms of news, and one story that has been rather crowded out is the COVID inquiry. With the exception of the odd blockbuster appearance that gives salacious insight into the number 10 soap opera, but little else. And the problem with that is twofold. First, it trivializes a hugely important, quite literally life and death part of a public life. And second, it makes it inaccessible because people don't have hundreds of hours a month to listen to testimony and look at documents. And so they rely on media to fillet it down to the most important bits as opposed to the most sensational. And so since I am the sort of sad soul that does watch hundreds of hours of testimony and looks at documents, I'll find a fellow geek and put together a compilation, a sort of now COVID volume one, which leads me to welcoming back Christina Pargel, Professor of Operational Research at UCL and a member of Independent Sage. Welcome back, Christina. Thank you for having me. We've picked seven clips, all of which make salient points on how the pandemic was handled, but also on what needs to change. Let's listen to the first clip, which is evidence given by former special advisor to Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings. Due in large part to your own WhatsApps, Mr. Cummings, we're going to have to coarsen our language somewhat. I apologise. You called ministers useless fuckpigs. Morons, cunts, in emails and WhatsApps to your professional colleagues. Do you think you contributed to a lack of effectiveness on the part of ministers and of the cabinet? No, I think I was reflecting a widespread view uh, amongst uh, competent people at the centre of power at the time about the calibre of a lot of senior people who were dealing with this crisis extremely badly. Now, you may think me a terrible hypocrite for opening with this, the most salacious, the most soap opera-like bit. But I want to make a different point. The dysfunction at the heart of number 10 negatively impacted the way we were served as a nation. And what we saw last week with Suella Braveman's resignation and her parting shot is that this dysfunction is alive and continuing. And what that says to me, together with the non-reform that has gone on in government since then, the pace of the inquiry and the lack of media coverage, is that the assumption is we have lots of time, that the next crisis won't be for a few years. We'll have gone through all this, made the changes necessary, that we can take our time learning lessons, but the next crisis might be tomorrow. 
Is that a fair thing to think, Christina? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it wasn't surprising to hear it, but I think it it looks like it was worse than we even thought it was mm. going to be. And for me, thinking about it as an inquiry and about an effort in learning how to improve things, you can't really control who you have in power at the time of a crisis, right? Because you don't know when yeah. it's going to happen. And we were spectacularly unlucky to have the cabinet that we did and the prime minister that we did. And it's you know it's been borne out over and over again, people saying Boris Johnson was not fit to lead us in a pandemic. So the question is, how can we change the way that we do politics so that we have serious people in charge, people who take it seriously to try and do the best for their country? And I feel like we've not had that in years. Mm. How do we move towards that? I mean, I, I don't know. And how do we have a sort of safety net in place so that even if we end up with someone who is limited in a particular post, that our lives don't entirely depend on that and the relationships between them. I couldn't stop thinking last week, you know, what if another Salisbury or worse happened on Sunday? Like in the middle of that absolute bun fight between the prime minister and the home secretary, would he be able to rely on her to trust what she said to him about this? Would people listen to what she said or would it all be turned into some massive culture war thing where people who disliked Suella Braveman basically refused to listen to the Home Office's advice and people who liked her did or vice versa? And it just seems to me that there's implicit in all this a resignation that the political sphere is a toxic space and there's nothing you can do about it. There is no way to improve management in those organizations that will mean they can function a little bit better because politicians will be politicians. And I don't know, that might be right, but it seems to me that not asking the question is a pretty strange thing. I mean, we saw exactly that in the inquiry, right? When loads of people, especially Cummings, but not just Cummings, were saying no one trusted Matt Hancock not to lie to them, right? I mean, that's an exact and example. Yet he like, was what... in post for the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you're just kind of in this situation where how do you deal with that? And normally you think, okay, legislation is brought in front of parliament and parliament has some power. But in a crisis, you end up with the executive having much more power. And we saw that. So we ended yeah. up people saying you couldn't make decisions because Boris kept changing his mind. Well, when did we end up with a system where the prime minister gets the final say on everything? You know, that doesn't Absolutely. feel that doesn't feel the right way to me in mm. the future. So whether we need to set up a system of of some kind of independent body having responsibility for achieving an aim, the aim may be set by the government, mm. but they have authority to try and pursue that aim with the best expertise available. And it might be another disease, but it could be another, you know, another type of crisis that emerges. I mean, who knows what it will be? Yeah. But also in terms of a sort of ongoing scrutiny. I mean, another thing that has surprised me is that out of this, we haven't had a, a kind of dashboard that is publicly available, transparent, and says we are holding sufficient stocks of PPE right now. The number of ITU beds available, <laughs> you know, in the next month is X. I mean, I would have thought that would organically come out of what happened, but no. Well, we do have a dashboard on NHS beds. 
that does exist. Not that I've seen. So. <laughs> yeah, but you kind of like you have to know where to look. But the right. NHS England actually does publish an admirable amount of statistics on its mm. performance and availability and capacity, and particularly that ramps up over winter. The issue for me is that people we have information that people don't act on it. You know, like we're really good at collecting stuff and really bad at actually responding to what that information is telling us. So in a sense, we just sit there and and scribble and record while the world burns. And and how do we get out of that cycle? I think it's just as important a question. That, I think, is a, a brilliant theme for today's conversation. We're really good at collecting data, but not very good at acting on it. The other thing that came out of, well, that clip and other things, apart from all the swearing that was going on via WhatsApp, is just how many decisions were made via WhatsApp. Mm. And the lack of transparency that that's caused, not just by disappearing phones, but now, you know, as one of the people said, they put on disappearing messages on their WhatsApps. <laughs> so I can understand how in the heat of a moment, you don't want to be accountable for everything you say. But we need that, right? We need to have a trail, a paper trail, of how decisions get made and who made them and why they made mm. them. And there doesn't mean to be any plan in the future of how that's going to happen in government. Yeah, I think the issue with WhatsApps is that they occupy this weird twilight between a formal communication and sort of having a word in someone's ear that's not really noted down anywhere. And it feels to me like a lot of public servants thought it was more like the latter, like just having a quick word with someone rather than putting together a formal document, or they would never have expressed themselves in those ways. And maybe that's a, you know, that's also a valuable lesson for all the people working there, that what they, you know, what they put down in writing and text to someone, they might as well write it in a memo, you know, because it's there. So the next clip is Andrew O'Connor, the King's Counsel for the Inquiry, speaking to Helen McNamara, who was at the time of the initial stages of the pandemic, Deputy Cabinet Secretary. Is it fair to say um, that there weren't the plans that there might have been or the procedures or the safeguards that there might have been to stop quite so many people in and around Downing Street getting a transmissible virus at a time of a pandemic? <coughs> it's absolutely fair. And as I say, I really hope that there is more of a plan now and it's probably the case that even weeks and weeks before there was a decision to be made to you know go to the next stage in terms of the whole country there should have been more care taken about the key people who might be involved in those decisions. Now Christina you will know from my writings that this is a personal obsession of mine because I find it incredible that there were no safety and security protocols at number 10. And I find it incredible how little attention that's had. You know, that the prime minister, the deputy prime minister, the chancellor, the health secretary, the two chief medical and scientific advisors would get in a room and breathe the same air and then go out to their respective departments and, you know, and infect their staff in turn. And actually, even though I know a lot of people became infected in number 10, I think it could have been a lot worse. I think we could have been in a situation where basically, you know, Johnson and Rob fell over, 
And constitutionally, there was zero plan as to what happens as a country. And at a time of fear and panic out there, I think that would have been devastating. And I just don't understand it. The government was using all this warlike language. When the war broke out in Ukraine, the first thing the Ukrainian government did was to take their deputy prime minister and put them in a bunker somewhere as far away as possible from a prime minister, right? There is a government skeleton A and a government skeleton B. America would do the same thing ordinarily with the president, the vice president in any kind of threat. And I just find it incredible that this has not been discussed. I am delighted that obviously the inquiry is taking it seriously because they've been asking questions about along that line. But I don't know that there is a plan even now. No, and you heard Helen McNamara say in it that she doesn't think there was a single day when the rules were followed within Downing Street. I mean, it's just beyond belief to me that it was incredibly reckless. I mean, you were literally risking the lives of the key decision makers. And the weird thing is you saw the same thing in the NHS. Like I did some work with the XL Nightingale in mm. London back in March, April 2020. And I had to go in one day. And there was, you know, everyone was sitting together around a the table. There was no masking. There was little hand sanitization. I mean, and then while I was there, while I was working there in the first week or two, four or five senior people went off with COVID, one after the other. And he's just like, what are you doing? You heard Dominic Cummings say that he'd had, he was sick for, for months and still carried on working. Boris Johnson was sick for a long time after he you know, was acutely ill with it. Of course, it affected their decision making. Like it could have been worse, but I actually think it was probably worse than we even realised. Yeah. yeah, and we now know that the Johnson situation was worse than than we were told. A contact of mine that works in the cabinet office said to me that pretty much from day one, the assumption was we're all going to get it. Well, I think, but th <laughs> that assumption was for the whole country. And, I know, and, that, and that's the weird thing when I look back at listening to people talking about that time during the inquiry. It just feels to me quite sad that we didn't have any ambition, that we didn't try. We kind of gave up before mm. we even started. Mm. Like, we'll never be able to test. We'll never be able to contact trace. We'll never be able to stop people mixing. You know, this kind of assumption that we're just incapable. Whereas other countries massively ramped up their testing, ramped up their contact tracing, trusted in their population and did loads better. And, and like, why did we give up? I just don't understand it. It's interesting while you were saying that, I also thought that the flip side of that is that we were also saying on whatever area then we did decide to take action, we're going to be world beating. <laughs> you know, how about just being good enough, you know, before and after the event? How about just doing things in a functional and efficient way rather than either saying we're going to do nothing or we're going to be the best in the world on everything? You know, and, and alongside that, you had also this deep reluctance to learn from other countries from the very beginning onwards. You know, we could see what was happening in Italy at the end of February. Well, we now know they were laughing. March. Yeah, at... and, and we know that they've no one said, oh, it's Italy, we're not Italy. It was like, Italy has an amazing health, actually acute healthcare yeah. system. If their intensive care capacity is falling over, you better pay attention. And my intensive care colleagues at work were freaking out because they were all on WhatsApp with their Italian colleagues going, this is going to get really, really bad. And this was at the beginning of March. Yeah. In the summer of 2020, we had loads of countries that had done better. But did we learn from them? Not at all. I mean, it's just this weird idea that either Britain has to be the best or it doesn't count. Yes. And I think that that was partly actually weirdly related to Brexit because there was a mentality that 
if Europe zigs, we must zag. <laughs> you know, no objective assessment on whether they're doing what is right. We must do the opposite thing. And I, I think that ended up costing lives. Let's play the next clip. This is, uh, again, Andrew O'Connor to McNamara. So this, this is a, a, a passage in his statement which has been subject of some consideration at the inquiry. Um, but, but this is a response by Mr Johnson to the suggestion that there should have been JMCs mm -hmm. during, the, um, uh, during the pandemic. He says, it is optically wrong in the first place for the UK Prime Minister to hold regular meetings with the other DA First Ministers, as though the UK were a kind of mini-EU of four nations, and we were meeting as a council in a federal structure. That is not, in my view, how devolution is meant to work. D do you see any tension between your proposal in the document that we were looking at, your expectation, and that statement by Mr Johnson? Yes. I chose this because I found it very interesting. And this is this does not go one way. You know, if we could play loads of clips, there's there's plenty of evidence that, for instance, Nicola Sturgeon would sort of rush into announcing things to get the drop on the Westminster government. So it went every which way. It didn't just emanate from Downing Street. I found it quite incredible that those sort of unionism versus independence politics would be playing out during a crisis like this. And I know I'm going to get loads of angry messages from our lovely SNP supporting listeners, but I was wondering, is there an argument for taking back devolved health matters in a public health crisis. I don't mean permanently, but I mean in a case like this. Is there value to the response being centrally coordinated? Because if there's no real borders between the nations of the UK, then I don't understand what sense it makes for here to have a, a restriction that says you know, two meters and only six people and there to have no such restriction, you know, two meters that way, based on a relatively arbitrary border that doesn't really exist. So I actually don't think that it should have been more centralized. I mean, don't forget that within England, we had different restrictions within, yeah. you know, with, within London, even you know, within different boroughs. I mean, it was just ridiculous in that sense. I think the way the healthcare systems are set up in the devolved nations is different. Mm. And that requires there to be a different response. And mm. I don't think you can mandate it. And there was actually quite a lot of central control, control that actually really hampered what the devolved nations could do. So, for instance, Scotland was very keen to increase payments for people who were self-isolating. And they, and they couldn't. They were restricted from that. So where I think would have been really good is if there had been a common aim agreed across the four nations. Mm -hmm. And I actually think the island of Ireland, you know, so that, yeah, that yeah. so it include the Republic of Ireland in that. And then you say, right, this is where we want to go. And then you allow the different countries their own ways of getting it that's best suited to their population. And I actually think we'd have been better off allowing much more flexibility to local places. Controlling an infectious disease is completely different in an inner city than it is in a rural area. And you want to have the flexibility to deal with it differently. Yeah. 
That's true. That I mean, that was very evident to me in Greece at the beginning of this crisis because we have you know hundreds yeah. of tiny little islands, and so if there was a an outbreak, if there was a single case on one island, they would literally just stop the boats, <laughs> so that you isolated that island for a week, tested everyone extensively, and only when you were sure you didn't have a sort of mini outbreak did you then restore communication. But I guess it's easier to do when you have a country that's fragmented into little islands and and less easy to do, you know, to prevent someone who wants to go to the pub from traveling two miles, you know, to get out of Wales and go to a pub. But you had that here with, you know, getting out of tier one areas or getting out of one that's of the tier true. four areas. That's I mean, I think, I think the other thing that really worries me about that clip is is this idea of the optics of it. Like, you know, you wh- where do you see yeah, um, look. any kind of engagement with actually what does it mean? Like, what is actually best in terms of policy for us to do? And that doesn't even seem to have entered his head, right? It's still this whole weird Brexit framing. Mm. I just don't understand, like, you know, if a global pandemic isn't enough to make you know, the leader of your country serious, then, you know, then what is? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, the next three clips are the ones you have chosen from the inquiry, and they are, whereas mine were primarily focused on the politics and the running, as it were, of the government on the political side of things, yours, I think, is fair to say, are more focused on the science and how the science interacted with the politicians, as it were. So the first clip is Baron Simon Stevens, who at the time was CEO of NHS England. I certainly wanted to discourage the idea that an individual Secretary of State, uh, other than in uh, the most exceptional circumstances, should be deciding how care would be provided. I felt that uh, we are well served by uh, the medical profession in consultation with patients uh, to the greatest extent possible making those kinds of decisions. So this is all about the headline saying Hancock wanted to play God, mm. right? He wanted to decide if the NHS had to ration care, who gets care and who doesn't, who dies and who doesn't. And the reason I picked it is that I think that the headlines kind of miss something. Yes, Hancock is an appalling individual, but that shouldn't surprise us. And there was absolutely <laughs> no chance in hell that he would ever have been in a position to do that, right? Mm. He, mm. That just wouldn't have happened. But I feel like it was a bit of a dead cat moment <laughs> for Simon Stevens because he went on to say... 
but we weren't overwhelmed. The NHS wasn't about overwhelmed. That eventuality didn't happen. And I don't think that's true. Mm. If you talk to people on the front line, they absolutely were overwhelmed. The NHS still hasn't recovered. Every single performance indicator on the NHS is not just worse than pre-pandemic, but much worse, and it's just not getting better. And if you don't learn from the impact it's had on our healthcare system, then we are not going to be better off in the next pandemic. We're going to be worse off. And, and I think this is a really worrying thing. People just don't seem to have picked up on it. And I've actually done like a survey of, of staff who are on the NHS frontline during the first two waves. And I just wanted to read out some of the things that they said about what it was like, because it makes my point about how much strain the NHS was under and the impact it's had that it, people cannot do their jobs anymore. They talk about PTSD, burnout, exhaustion. They can't go above and beyond anymore. They've had to stop night shift. So I'm just going to read out a, a couple. This is from a radiographer who were qualified early to help cover and they said they were young, lived alone, struggled to cope with the horrors we witnessed and the solitude of life outside work. It was heartbreaking. I don't think any of us are the same, particularly now we know that those imposing the rules on us ignored them and carried on as usual. And there's so much anger still there. This surgeon who was seconded to intensive care said, I will never forget or forgive how the pandemic was managed. It caused many deaths. People close to me have said, get over it. I will never get over seeing whole families and healthcare workers die. You know, a nurse who was 27 talked about crying herself to sleep, that she questioned whether she was going to die the next day, that she developed PTSD and needed counselling. Some of her friends have killed themselves. I mean, it's just awful. Another nurse says the government broke not just the NHS, it broke us. I will never forgive them. And mm. it's just like so many of these over and over and over again and you were just like yeah it feels like we've forgotten and we're not bearing witness to it and we're not learning from it mm. and we're still expecting these people to care for us and we haven't cared for them yeah and and i just feel like that has to be acknowledged and it wasn't acknowledged and simon stevens is the one that should have been acknowledging it mm. like he was head of the nhs and he just kind of skated over it i think in many ways it is that period that is the direct motivation of the extensive strikes we have seen, actually. Yeah. It, it feels like when the Prime Minister and the Chancellor stepped on the doorstep of Number 10 and Number 11 and applauded those people who went through that stuff, it seemed to me to contain an implied promise that when this is over, we'll look after you. And then when this was over, the government turned around and said, sorry, we haven't got any money. I mean, that came up again and again. The survey people said they now blame us for the strikes. <laughs> and and it just feels like a, a kick in the teeth. And just, I just don't think we can ever really understand what it was like. You know, they talk about wiping the tears of patients as they die, you know, holding, not being able to let family members in, of mm. seeing whole families die on their own and never getting over it, having flashbacks, saying, I'm never going to be the mm. same person. Simon Stevens' response, I mean, he doesn't strike me as a devious or mendacious person. I may be wrong, but it seems to me there's something, uh, there's something of the phlegmatic, stiff upper lip narrative in that that makes us believe that we came very close to breaking, but we didn't break because it would somehow be seen as indecorous or a defeat to say, Actually, it broke us, and we are still broken. What do you think shapes that narrative? Is it just that, the, you know, the public servants at the top 
don't have actually a clear idea of what the staff on the front line went through or that they're somehow dressing it up to look nicer. I think there, I think there were two things. I think they did know, but I think at the time you don't want to say we're overwhelmed because if somebody mm. is literally having a heart attack, you don't want them to stop. You want them to come in because it's still going to be better than not coming in. Yeah. And so there's this kind of tension where you don't want to stop people coming in. So you can't say we're screwed. They also were really reluctant to talk about rationing. I think they, they sh we should have been much more upfront about it at the beginning. And, and the ICU doctors, I know they say, I mean, it happened. And saying it didn't happen. It happens all the yeah. time. One of the ICU respondents said, you know, that was one of the worst things is the guilt of having to make those kind of decisions. But the other thing that I think is motivating NHS leadership is I think there's this fear that if they say it broke us, that the government will turn around and said, well, private is the answer and use that as an excuse to go full on for a private system. And I think that actually forces the NHS to pretend it's okay and better than it is because of that. That's fascinating. I think there's a, a huge amount of truth in that. But I still think there is something about the sort of the narrative line through being British that if you read accounts of the Blitz contemporaneous to the Blitz, mm. you know, people were scrappy and they hated being told what to do and they didn't listen to the advice occasionally and, you know, and five years later, it's described as this glorious thing <laughs> where we, you know, we we came together and and sort of persevered. But it really, it it wasn't like that. It was more nuanced and scrappy like that. And I think we just need to, um, in a sense, grow up a little bit in the the stories we tell to ourselves about ourselves. So your second clip is John Edmonds, who was a, a modeler that fed information into the SAGE group that the government took advice from. To be honest, it made me angry, and I'm still angry about it. Um, uh, it was one thing taking your foot off the brake, which is what we've been doing by easing the restrictions, but to put the foot on the accelerator seemed to me uh, perverse, and to spend public money to do that when 45,000 people had just died. I couldn't, you know, I, I don't want to blame ETAP to help out for the second wave because that's not the case. But the, just, the, just the optics of it were terrible. And since then, we also found out that actually there was no scientific advice on it at all. They, they literally knew about ETAP to help out the same moment that you and I knew about Eat Out to help out. Why did you choose this? Just to be kind of emblematic of how after, I think, the first wave, the government just started listening less and less <laughs> to the, their SAGE advisors. And, you know, Eat Out to help out started just after, literally within weeks of having seen quite rapid increased spread in some European countries that had opened up earlier. So Spain was one example, for instance, where we could trace it to restaurants and bars. And then you literally have Eat Out to help out within weeks. Mm. When we were in a position, actually, we're in a good position. We knew that schools were going to be an issue in September. And what do you do? You increase transmission before we kind of get into autumn. I mean, it was just a crazy thing to do. And you saw it kind of throughout that autumn. We would go a little bit of the way towards controlling the pandemic. But a lot of it was performance art and not actually wanting to do it. We had a yeah. requirement to isolate 
but we never really gave people the money or the support they yeah. needed to isolate. We had loads of tests, but never told people the full symptoms of COVID until a year ago when f- tests stopped being free, right? We said wear a mask, but we never told people how to wear a good mask or how to wear it well. Like we did these kind of half measures that just never worked. And then we acted too late. And for all the, there's the chaos and the disaster of the first wave, it's the second wave to me that is is much, much more unforgivable because by then we did know better. Hmm. We knew what to do. We had warning. We had months to prepare. And we had so many more people die just as the vaccine was coming. And I, and I think if there's one statistic that sticks with me is that, you know, vaccine started the 1st of December. We were one of the first countries in the world to roll out a vaccine. We did have a genuinely world-class yeah. vaccine rollout. Yeah. And by the end of January... 2021, we'd given 8 million doses, right? About 50%, 30 to 50% of over 70s had had at least one dose. So, And remember, the vaccine was really good at the original yeah, variant, yeah. including stopping infection. And in those two months, we had about 55,000 deaths. If we could have delayed, yeah. we could have delayed that wave. The famous circuit breaker. Well, not even the circuit breaker, but actually just, just, just suppression with contact tracing. If we'd actually got that in place in the summer of 2020, mm. Tens of thousands of people would be alive today that aren't. And and I just cannot, I just don't know how we can forgive that. Do you sometimes get a sense that what played out in the minds of the cabinet was that it was either people's lives or the economy, that those were two alternatives, when actually we can see that with countries that lock down early and hard, the effect on the economy was actually less severe, like the dip was less deep and the recovery was much faster. So was that the false dichotomy that condemned those tens of thousands of people? I mean, it was definitely one of the things that was playing into their minds. And you could see that with, you know, Rishi Sunak was on, you know, everyone, well, not everyone, but, you know, it's come out repeatedly that he was there saying, I'm worried about the economy. Mm. I don't want to do this. You can't do this. And it's not just that the countries that actually controlled it through lockdown, hard and early lockdown, did better. But there were some countries that never had lockdowns because they controlled it through other yeah. ways, like South Korea or Japan or Vietnam, whose economies also did a lot better. If you have a deadly disease, and this is obviously your pre-vaccine, rampaging through your population, people aren't going to just go out for the sake of it. I mean, there's going to be an impact on your economy. I mean, far be it from me to defend Rishi Sunak, but one could argue that that was his job within cabinet to make that argument and that it was the job of a strong secretary of health and a home secretary to make the arguments about safety and up to a strong prime minister to listen to those two things and decide. And I think the unfortunate thing is that we had a, a chancellor that was arguing the treasury's corner but the health secretary, I mean, by absolute unanimous testimony was a liar and a fool that nobody trusted. And the prime minister was one that absented himself from making any kind of decision, which meant delay. And we saw that like literally in the run up to Christmas. We mm. had by that stage, you know, the new variant, the alpha variant, which is more transmissible. There were these massive waves in schools in early December. And there was this constant worry, I don't want to cancel Christmas, I don't want to cancel Christmas. Like, since when does a virus give a shit about Christmas? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. No, you can't wait two weeks when it's doubling every Can I ask you something just (laughs) tangentially on a human level? Am I alone 
in having been stupid enough to think that Johnson would come out of his experience in ITU, you know, with a slightly more serious <laughs> attitude. Because this is one of the things that absolutely bowls me over, it knocks me down, that he faced such serious illness. We now know it was even more serious than we were told. He almost died, and then he comes out, and he's more cavalier about risks. That just doesn't compute for me. Well, I think we take it more seriously than he did. I remember him going into hospital and feeling kind of, oh, shit, and it felt quite my leaders in hospital. And it felt something. I mean, I, I was never been a fan of Boris Johnson, but I I still, it still affected me. I know. And I thought, at least people will take it seriously now. I remember thinking that. But, you know, the mind of Boris Johnson is obviously a strange place that we don't want to go into. <laughs> now, the next clip is Hugo Keith, who is another of King's councils that work on the inquiry referencing the notes that Sage put in the public domain about people being used as human shields. I think that's the takeaway. Sage was never designed to be run at such speed, with such heat or for so long. It sat for over a hundred meetings. In past crises, it's met generally on no more than five occasions. Its members worked around the clock unceasingly in the public interest and pro bono. And as you know, they were placed under sustained and also unfair media scrutiny and increasingly attack. The diaries of Sir Professor Valence speak of SAGE and the CMO and the CSA being positioned as human shields. I wanted to cover this because, you know, I think he's right. I mean, there were hundreds of scientists working on SAGE and they did work all hours for years, many of them and produce countless minutes and reports that are now all in, in the public domain. But at the time, it feels as if they felt that they couldn't speak out mm. and that there was some kind of restraint, that, that they had to restrain themselves and, 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 and almost their minutes would be the record. But I think that left this, this massive gap in public communication that was filled by the government interpreting it as they chose or ignoring it mm. as they chose. And yet we still had, you know, Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty standing on a podium next to politicians. And even when they didn't say anything, gave the impression that it had scientific support. When we now know they didn't believe that. And I just kind of think, is that really a sensible way to do a pandemic? Should we have more explicit independence where scientists are not in the same briefing as politicians? The scientists can say, this is the situation. Here's a rundown of the numbers. These are the kind of scenarios that we think might work. And then the politicians come up later and say, this is what we're going to do and make that very clear. Mm. And I think there was this other issue with the remit of SAGE is that the government would say, here are X, Y, Z policies. You go away and model them. And they didn't really have the freedom to say, okay, well, none of those work. <laughs> you know, why don't we do something <laughs> yes. completely different? Yeah. Again, instead of saying, okay, our aim is we want you to think about how do I repress the virus as much as possible while opening the economy? What are ways of doing that? And that was much less the case. And I think I think in the future, we really do need to have a lot more independence and a lot more kind of direct communication between scientists and the public of yes. what their advice is and what it means. So it's not going through the lens of a government. It's interesting how, because in Greece, the evening press conference was led by the equivalent of Chris Whitty. And it's interesting how 
many more things I was finding out about the virus. You know, there were daily discoveries, really. Every day we knew, we knew new things about the virus, about how it's transmitted, about what works, about what doesn't work, about what's going on with the vaccines that just weren't being passed down because I would then, the press conference in Greece was 6 p.m. every evening, which is 4 o'clock UK time. Yeah. And I would watch the UK one right after. And the difference was striking. And I just wonder whether... There is a problem there that is unsolvable because science, especially on such new things, it can't provide certainty. It can tell you maybe this, maybe that. We think 51% more likely this. And then a politician needs to take that and turn it into it's definitely option A. And whether that is something that we just need to educate people more about that when there's something new, we don't know, you know, to, to be upfront enough to say we know very little. Yeah. So let's be let's do the safe thing. And then if it turns out we were overly cautious, that's better than being overly risky, right? So I think that's where if you had the kind of the Greek model where you have scientists giving a separate thing, they could try and present some of that uncertainty and say, you know, we think the most likely thing is this, but it could be this. And then when the politicians decide what policy they're going to do, they can say, well, we've had to make a call. Yeah. This is the call that we've made for these reasons. These are the risks of doing it. Yeah. And that's our responsibility. And then you're kind of making you it really explicit. Yeah, you Whereas what, what you're not saying is, this is the only option and this yeah. is what the scientists have definitely said yeah. we should do, which I think is some, sometimes the impression that you could have got from the British um, press yeah. conference. Is that, yeah, they were being used as set dressing, basically. Yeah. You know, they, they were the equivalent of a shampoo advertisement that puts people in a <laughs> white lab coat and glasses, right, to say, now this is very scientific. So that wraps things up, but I have chosen one more clip because I want to put down a marker because the next tranche of witness testimonies coming. And I think this has largely flown under the radar. I have my own cynical theories as to why the press may have ignored this particular one, but it is something that I think people should keep an eye on. This is Dominic Cummings talking about Johnson. Obviously, there was a general uh, um, uh, feeling in number 10 that the way in which the prime minister responded constantly to the media was uh, extremely bad uh, and uh, extremely damaging to the COVID response. There were specific concerns about his relationship with the Barclays and the Telegraph, and there were specific concerns and also suspicions of possible corruption in terms of his relationship with Osborne and funneling money to the Evening Standard. I mean, I don't particularly want to add anything to that because I don't enjoy being sued, but... <laughs> It is a fairly extraordinary statement. It is one that I am certain Sunak and Johnson will be questioned about when they come to give evidence. But the wider point is I had this impression, and this is something I said, I think, first. I, it, it might have been something like the 2nd of March 2020. I think I put out a tweet that said, it seems to me like the government is treating this as a public relations crisis rather than a 
a public health crisis. And that's an impression that stayed with me really throughout the pandemic. Was that your impression from just seeing how they went, from knowing now that you're seeing the, the background workings of how they went about things? I mean, it seems to me that everything was done on the lens of what's going to win us the next election. And some of that was actually doing some control of the pandemic. Mm. But a lot of it was, as you say, public relations, you know, and I don't think it's a surprise that the newspapers mentioned are the ones that win the Conservatives' elections. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting that Sunak kept mentioning it out to help out throughout his leadership campaign as, you know, this this will show you how caring I am about people, how helpful I want to be, the furlough and the eat out, help out are the things he kept bringing up. And it now transpires from the evidence that he resisted furlough like crazy for weeks before being made to do it, basically, and that eat out to help out was an absolute public health disaster. So more to come. Uh, we recorded this last week during a brief lull in the inquiry. It's It's got going, started up again today. Next up are people like Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance. Jonathan Van Tam, I think, is in there. And we are also into the politicians. At the tail end of last week, we saw Priti Patel, but there are many, many big players to come. Michael Gove, Sunak will be in there, Johnson will be in there. And, of course, Matt Hancock will at some point before mid-December, which is when these sessions run to will also give an account of himself. So drop us a line on social media or in the comments if you have found this particularly useful and you would maybe like us to do another one uh, in a few weeks' time, make it a semi-regular update. Also say nice things about us because we are crushed by insecurity and compliment soothers. Christina, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And why not bung us three quid on Patreon that we may continue to watch hours of crushing evidence so you don't have to. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Christina Pargel. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.